This week's episode is sponsored by my latest books, Blood Tingling Tales, Volume 1 and Volume 2. Each book has over 15 tales of terror waiting for you. Both are available on Amazon. Blood Tingling Tales, Volume 1 is completely free for everyone. Blood Tingling Tales, Volume 2 is just 99 cents, or free if you have Kindle Unlimited. Just go to Amazon.com and search for Blood Tingling Tales, or go to ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash books. If you like scary stories, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories Podcast. <laughs> Sit back and relax. Keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times and enjoy the ride. Region 6. I'm an observation manager in a remote region of a massive forest preserve located in the Pacific Northwest. I'm one of six managers in my region. Region 6. Each manager has their own cabin. The cabins are scattered throughout Region 6. I'm in cabin number one. The next closest cabin to me is cabin number two. Cabin number two is my sister cabin. All sister cabin means is that it's the only cabin within walking distance. If you consider a six hour hike walking distance. Cabins three and four are sister cabins as are cabins five and six. For perspective, it would take me two days to walk to cabin number three and that's the next closest cabin to me after cabin number two. Each of us observation managers is all alone in our cabin and we hardly ever get visitors. The isolation is enough to drive some people crazy. You really have to love wildlife and be a serious loner to last at this job. I've been doing this for five years. That should tell you everything you need to know about me. For most people, the job would be boring. For the most part, all we do is observe the vast area allocated to us around our cabin. If we come across any fishermen, we're supposed to confirm that they have a valid fishing license. We also pick up any trash that hikers leave behind. We keep an eye out for poachers, and one of the most important jobs we have is to make sure any campfires we come across are fully extinguished. Normal observation managers would deal with those tasks consistently. But region number six is different. Region number six is a newly formed region that previously did not require observation managers due to the fact that it's one of the most dense and secluded areas of the forest. Nobody ever camps in region number six, and the hikers who pass through this region are few and far between. However, in the past few years, the number of people who have gone missing from region six has tripled. We have no idea why. 
Because of this, they opted to install the six observation manager cabins throughout the regions. We'd be the first ones contacted if anyone who has been known to be in Region 6 goes missing. The hope is that having observation managers stationed throughout the region will bring the missing person numbers down. So, Region number 6, being what it is, leaves us observation managers out here with very little to do. A normal day for me consists of hiking around the immediate area of my cabin for any signs of human life. If I hear voices, I'll investigate further. But I never do. If I smell smoke, I'll investigate further. But that hasn't happened yet either. There's a small lake that is a two-hour hike from my cabin. Once a week, I make a point to go out there to check for fishermen. That's my excuse, anyhow. I really just go out there to take a nice swim. All of the Region 6 observation managers signed a contract for two months. At the end of two months, we all rotate to another cabin in the region. This should help us all to keep from going stir-crazy. It also gives every observation manager an opportunity to resign their post if they can't handle the lack of activity in Region Number 6. The only thing that we must do on a daily basis is check in with each other once a day at 11 o'clock a.m. It's a safety measure to let everyone know that we survived the night. It's kind of like a group chat over walkie-talkies as all six of us check in with each other at once. Since we're all introverts, those group chats usually last no more than five minutes. We also must check in with our sister cabin every night at 8 p.m., again just as a precaution to make sure all is well. The gal in my sister cabin, cabin number two, has a very sweet high-pitched voice. Her name is Candy. She's cute as a button, but in her mid-twenties. That's way too young for a 43-year-old guy like myself. But she's very nice, and I look forward to hearing her squeaky voice on our nightly check-ins. I was surprised when I heard her voice coming through my walkie-talkie at 6.30 p.m. We always checked in precisely at 8 p.m. and would chit-chat lightly for 10 minutes or so before signing off. Calling in this early was unusual for her. Carl? Carl, are you there? I was sitting on the front porch of the cabin finishing up an evening cup of coffee, but hurried to the walkie when I recognized a hint of concern in her voice. Yeah, I'm here. What's up? Have you heard anything unusual outside your cabin recently? No, everything is normal out here. Why? Well, it's probably nothing, but I was talking to Fred at cabin number six earlier. He said that last night he heard something zipping through the forest. My initial thought was deer, elk, moose, but at 50 years old, Fred was the oldest and most seasoned of the observation managers. He wouldn't have bothered mentioning that experience unless something strange was involved. He said whatever it was let out a growl. Well, there were bear in the area, black bear and grizzly but we rarely encountered them. Bear, maybe? I don't think so. He said there was a shriek to the growl that he was unfamiliar with. So I was just calling around to all of the cabins to see if anyone else heard anything out of the ordinary. Nothing other than a few coyotes yipping. 
Maybe that's what Fred heard. Coyotes make some weird-ass sounds sometimes. I was positive it wasn't coyotes that Fred had heard. I said that more to try to set Candy's mind at ease. Yeah, maybe it was just coyotes. At least, I hope so. Well, if you hear anything strange, don't hesitate to give me a holler. Thanks, Carl. Fred had been doing this longer than I had been. If he thought there was a chance that it was a coyote, wolf, or bear, he wouldn't have mentioned it to anyone. I would have radioed him just to get more information, but I was about to start dinner, so I'd just wait and chat with him about it tomorrow. That night I sat on my porch and made a point to listen for anything out of the ordinary. I stayed up as late as my eyelids would allow. The next morning, after doing some of my early morning rounds, I checked my watch and I saw it was getting close to 11 a.m. I got back to my cabin, pressed down the button on my walkie-talkie, and initiated the check-in. This is Carl, cabin number one, checking in. Candy, cabin number two, checking in. Teresa, cabin number three, I'm here. Bob, cabin number four, alive and well. Hello everyone, cabin number five, Marsha. We all waited for Fred and cabin number six to respond. He was never late with check-ins. Marsha started calling out to him. Fred, you there? Can you hear us? We can't hear you. Click your receiving handle twice if you hear us. There was no click, no response at all, so I began to question Marsha. She was cabin number five, the sister cabin to Fred's cabin. They were required to check in with each other nightly. Marsha, did Fred check in with you last night? Yes, we checked in at 8 p.m. He sounded fine, but... Her voice trailed off. What? Well, he did mention that he'd been hearing something large moving around outside his cabin. We both figured it was a moose or a bear. I told him to take extra precautions and to make sure that he took his bear spray with him if he went outside. He said he would. That was the last I heard from him. The protocol for a missed check-in was for the observation manager from the sister cabin to hike out and check on the person who failed to check-in to make sure they were not injured. Marcia spoke up. I'm going to leave now. I should reach cabin number six no later than 8 p.m. Let's all plan on doing another check-in at that time and I'll give you an update. We all agreed and Marcia went on her way. It was rare for anyone to miss a check-in, and the primary reason most people did was due to radio malfunction. That's probably all it was. At least we hope so. On the rare occasion someone was injured, headquarters would send out a medical group on all-terrain vehicles. If it were serious, they could call in for a helicopter evacuation. I did some extra rounds around the forest of my cabin that day. I found nothing unusual at all. I checked in with Candy a couple of times just to make sure she wasn't having any issues. She said she was fine and that everything was peaceful. When 8pm rolled around, I began the check-in roll call. Howdy folks, this is Carl, cabin number one. Candy, cabin number two. This is Teresa, cabin number three. Cabin number four, check-in. Bob here. We all paused a long moment while we waited for Marsha to check in. 
Silence. Marsha, Fred, either of you there? Can you hear us? Nothing. This was concerning. None of our cabins were close enough to cabin number five or number six for any of us to hike out there and take a look. I alerted headquarters. They informed us that they would be sending out a four-person search team on ATVs to cabin number six. They told us to keep our walkie-talkies nearby and that they would alert us when they arrived, which would likely be just a couple hours. I asked Teresa and Candy if they had heard anything else strange since the last time we talked. Both of them said no and that everything in their area had been normal. Bob chimed in and said he hadn't experienced anything odd either. We all stayed inside our cabins and kept our walkies close. We'd occasionally chit-chat, but mostly sat alone in silence. Finally, the quiet was interrupted by the static of a walkie-talkie activating. Uh, This is Search Team 50. We arrived at cabin number 6. I was sure the others were just as anxious as I was, but I chimed in first. Did you find Fred and Marsha? Negative. No sign of either of them. The front door to cabin number 6 was wide open, but no Fred. No Marsha. We're about to head over to cabin number 5. It's possible they headed that way. Uh... His voice was interrupted by one of the other searchers in the distance. Hey! Hey! What the hell is that? Uh, hang on, folks. We got something here. We waited and waited, but we heard no further response from the search team. We spent the next hour calling out to the search team, but they never responded. I alerted headquarters, and they said they were on it, and they'd keep us informed. It was midnight when the four of us decided to sign off and hit the hay. We agreed we would do another check-in at 8 a.m. I slept on and off that night. I held out hope for a logical reason for the strange happenings, but I had a bad feeling about all of this. The next morning I was too anxious to wait until 8 a.m. to start roll call and started it at 7.50 a.m. Carl here, cabin number one. Is everybody okay? Candy, cabin number two. This is Teresa, cabin number three. Silence. I could hear the frustration and panic in Teresa's voice as she started calling out to Bob. Bob, Bob, check in with us please. Give us an update. What did you find out? Nothing. Teresa, when was the last time you talked to Bob? Just over an hour ago. He was fine. While we were talking, I heard a knock on his cabin door. He assumed it was the search team coming to check on him. He said he was going to answer the door and that he'd be right back. But that was the last I heard from him. Wait a minute. Someone knocked on his door? Yes, it had to be the search team. I mean, who else would it be? She paused for a moment before continuing. I'm going out there to check on Bob. Uh, Teresa, I don't think that's a good idea. Candy backed me up. Teresa, stay in your cabin until the search team gets there. Just wait. Where is the search team? Where is anyone? Look, I'm just going to jog there. I'm in good shape. I'm fast. I can make it there in three hours. I'll check in with both of you every hour along the way. I'm leaving now. Candy and I both tried to persuade her not to go, but she was having none of it. 
Since there was no stopping Teresa and things felt like they were getting out of control, I called headquarters. Hey, have you guys heard from the search team? No, uh, communication has been cut off. We're prepping another search team to head out that way. Well, you can tell them to head to cabin number four. Bob is missing now, too. And Teresa from cabin number three is on her way to check on him. Well, tell her to stay put. The search team can reach him before she can. She won't listen. Well, okay, if she's not at cabin number four when the search team arrives, they'll continue on to cabin number three and meet up with her in between. Headquarters tried their best to reassure Candy and I, but it was useless. We knew something wasn't right. I waited anxiously by the walkie-talkie, counting the seconds until Teresa's first check-in. Candy wasn't hiding her emotions. I'm scared, Carl. Something is wrong. I agree. Just keep your cabin door bolted shut, and don't open it unless someone you know shows up. I don't want to be alone right now. I knew just how she felt. The forest that had always brought me peace, serenity, and happiness was starting to give me the creeps. Candy, I'm packing a few things and I'm heading out your way. I should be there by nightfall. At this point, there was no reason for us to be sitting alone in our cabins waiting for the search team, or waiting for whatever happened to everyone else to happen to us. I needed to be more proactive than that. Candy was on board with the idea. Her level of fright was increasing by the minute. Having another human being out there with her would set her at ease. I filled my backpack up with water and beef jerky and hit the trail. A sense of relief washed over me as Teresa's voice echoed over the radio. She was panting and out of breath. I could hear the thuds of her jogging feet hitting the dirt trail beneath her. Teresa here. I'm making good time. Nothing to report yet. Everything is normal on the trail. I'll check in again in another hour. I wasn't the athlete that Teresa was. It was going to take me every minute of the six hours to get to cabin number two, but I was trying my best to keep the pace steady. I called into Candy every now and then just to let her know I was still en route. I could tell that she was comforted whenever she heard my voice. I was pleased when I heard Teresa's voice after another hour. This time it was obvious she had temporarily stopped to catch her breath. She was taking deep breaths as she talked. I should reach cabin number four in less than an hour, but there's something in the woods. What? What, what is it? I don't know, but it keeps moving alongside me under the cover of the forest. It's following me. It, it, it's stalking me. Do you have your bear spray? It's in my hand. I'm going to run the rest of the way. I'll let you know when I reach the cabin. As I trekked along, I listened to the surrounding wildlife for anything weird, but where I was, things were fine. At the moment, it wasn't lost on me that whatever was happening was getting closer to our location. Cabin number six, cabin number four, the next occupied cabin was cabin number two, which was exactly where I was headed. An hour later, I was hoping to hear something from Teresa. Instead, there was radio silence. I stopped and propped myself against a tree to catch my breath and called for Teresa over and over, but she didn't respond. Candy was starting to lose it. 
Carl, hurry, Carl, hurry. I can't be out here alone anymore. I'm coming, Candy. Just hang in there. Two hours later, the sun began to drift under the tree line, casting a gloomy shadow over everything. I wasn't talking to Candy anymore, but she was talking to me. My walkie-talkie was clipped on my belt, and she was just babbling on and on. I guess it gave her some sense of comfort knowing I was listening to her. Finally, her voice started to slow, and she'd take occasional long pauses between her words. She was growing tired and starting to nod off. The next hour of my hike was just myself and Mother Nature. I was getting close to Candy's cabin, probably no more than an hour away at this point. I was tempted to radio her and let her know it wouldn't be that much longer, but I didn't want to risk waking her up in the event that she did doze off. It was then that Candy broke radio silence. Her voice was tense and serious. Carl, there's someone on my front porch. Who is it? I don't know, but I can hear them walking back and forth. They're pacing. I could hear a metallic rattle in the background and Candy's voice became panicked. Oh, Oh my god, Carl, Carl, they're trying to get in the front door. I then heard a loud eruption of glass shattering, followed by Candy's fear-filled scream. And then nothing. I ran the rest of the way. By the time I reached Candy's cabin, I was completely out of breath. I collapsed to the ground and had to take several solid seconds to catch my breath before rushing to the front of the cabin. The door was bolted shut from the inside. I knocked relentlessly. Candy! Candy! Candy, are you in there? It's Carl! I'm here! There was no response. I walked along the porch of the cabin to the first window. It was smashed in. I peered inside the cabin. I saw evidence of a struggle, but no sign of Candy. I carefully climbed into her cabin and began searching around. The cabins are small, just a large open living area and kitchen, and an attached small bedroom and closet. I checked everywhere. Candy was not there. I unfastened the lock on the front door of the cabin and stepped outside onto the porch. I called out into the woods. Candy! Candy! Candy, are you out there? I heard no audible response, but I could hear the woods around the cabin beginning to stir. Something was out there, walking around. I could hear definitive footsteps. It was something on two legs. Candy, is that you? I knew it wasn't her. I was grasping at straws of hope. It was getting closer. I could see the brush at the edge of the woods beginning to shake. Whatever it was, was moving forward toward me. I could have turned and ran, but instead I stood frozen, fixed on the brush and I watched as a figure emerged. It was a woman. I had no idea who she was. She was approximately 5'8", with short black hair. Her bangs ended just before her dark brown eyes. Her lips were full. Her body was firm and muscular. And she was completely naked. She began walking toward me in a slow, methodical manner. She was staring at me, void of emotion. 
Uh, uh, lady, are, are you okay? She didn't answer, she just continued moving forward. As she reached the porch, I found myself taking steps backward to keep a distance between us, but eventually my back pressed against the outside of the cabin, stopping my progress. The woman kept moving toward me. Her hips swayed seductively and she did not slow her pace until her naked breasts were pressed against the front of my body. Her dark, brooding eyes were staring into me and I could hear her sniffing. Her voice came out as a hushed whisper. I'm hungry. Uh, oh, oh, you're 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 hungry? Well, oh, oh, well, let, let's go into the cabin. I'll 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 um I'll find you some food and 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 you can eat. She grinned at me as if she found my statement amusing. She kept her cold eyes fixed on me until she was distracted by the loud roar of the search team's ATVs. Three ATVs rolled up to the cabin. The searchers jumped off of their vehicles and took in the odd sight of the confident naked woman pressed up against me. The first searcher began walking toward us as the other two began removing medical kits from their bags. Uh, what's going on here? Are you two okay? The mysterious woman stepped away from me and turned to face the searchers full on. The lead searcher was trying to be professional, but he couldn't help but to discreetly look the attractive woman up and down. She moved toward the searcher and whispered loudly, I'm hungry. Before any of the searchers could react, the woman turned into a streaking blur. In the snap of a finger, she was now standing behind them. I watched as her torso ripped open and formed an enormous mouth with rows of shark-like teeth. Before the searchers could even turn to see her, she had already enveloped one of them and he disappeared down her gullet. The second searcher turned in time to witness the monster that would be the death of him, but it gave him no time to scream as he also disappeared down the belly of the beast. The lead searcher tried to run, but the creature flew over him at the speed of light, opening its torso mouth wide and swallowing him whole. Immediately the mouth closed, and the naked woman was standing before me again, showing no signs of having just devoured three men. There was no blood on her. There was no blood on the ground. There was no evidence of foul play. Nobody would have any clue as to what happened. Everyone would just be considered missing like every other person who made the mistake of wandering into Region 6. Again. The mystery woman moved in close to me, sniffing profusely. Her sinister whisper confirmed what I expected and feared. I'm still hungry. Here's a super fun way to support the show. Go to ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash store and buy some Maniac on the Loose merchandise. Let the world know you're a listener. T-shirts, sweatshirts, hoodies, hats, mugs, there's a bunch of items to choose from. And you have a multitude of design choices, including all of my book covers. Go take a look. It's super cool. Go on. Do it. Right now. Go. ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash store.
brain waves. There's something wrong with my brain. Every once in a while, the world around me seems to freeze. I can't explain it. It only lasts for a millisecond, but it happens. I know it happens. It, it, it can't all be in my mind, can it? It started two days ago. I went out to eat with my voluptuous wife, Scarlett. We were eating dinner at a very well-to-do restaurant. The place was extremely crowded and all of a sudden, everything froze. It was all back to normal by the time my brain was even able to register that something unusual had happened. And I guess I had a peculiar look on my face because my wife asked me about it. I didn't tell her what I experienced, I didn't want her to worry. Maybe this was a result of me being overly tired. I had been quite busy at work. I continued to try to rationalize the odd occurrence, but deep down, I knew there was not a logical explanation for what happened. My instincts were confirmed later that night when I was in the midst of an intense lovemaking session with my wife. She was on top of me and her long blonde hair was shaking back and forth with each motion of her gorgeous body and then all of a sudden, she was frozen. Her hair was suspended in an unnatural flowing state. She had been in mid-moan when the pause occurred, and her moan abruptly went silent as well, and then instantly picked back up once everything went back to normal. The suspension of time lasted slightly longer than it did at the restaurant. I asked my wife if she felt that. Evidently she did not, as she thought I was speaking of our sexual encounter and proceeded to respond to my question with dirty talk. This morning it happened in the lobby of my office building. I work in a massive building with a large, bustling lobby, and for a full second, every person in the lobby froze mid-stride and the lobby fell silent. And then just like that, it picked right back up like nothing happened. I started rubbing my temples and even gave my cheeks a firm slap, but I knew this was something that required more than a slap on the face to cure. Perhaps I had a brain aneurysm. Could this be the sign of a stroke? Brain cancer, maybe? I stepped into the elevator and was joined by a single man. He was a tall man in a black suit and tie. His hair was slicked back and he sported a five o'clock shadow. His eyes were dark and his eyebrows were furrowed in a menacing position. He had a very sinister way about him. I turned my focus to him when I realized he was staring at me. He held the stare as the elevator was set in motion and rose to the higher floors in the building. The cold gaze of the man made me uneasy. What? He didn't respond. Is there a problem? Why are you staring at me? He ignored me and kept his cold stare in place. I was about to say something in a sharper tone but was interrupted by a ding and the roar of the elevator doors opening on the 13th floor. The sinister man never took his eyes off me as he stepped out of the elevator. He then stood stoically in front of the doors and flashed a mischievous grin at me as the doors shut. What the hell was that about? 
I shook my head and repeatedly pressed the 14th floor as if that would make the elevator move faster. When I reached the 14th floor and exited the elevator, I was met by my boss, Mr. Clyde. He was in a frantic state. Oh, thank God you're here. Robert is missing. He was speaking of one of my co-workers. Robert was the kind of guy who was the first one in the office and the last one to leave. He rarely took breaks and dedicated his life to his duties in the office. Missing? What are you talking about? He was here this morning when I... That's when Mr. Clyde froze in mid-sentence. He completely stopped moving. His mouth was open, but no words were coming out, and the ambient sound of the machinery in the office went silent as well. This lasted approximately three seconds, and then all at once, he picked up right where he left off. Arrived to the office, but now he's gone. I can't find him. I didn't hear what he was saying. I was distracted by the suspension of time that interrupted his hysterical rant. Uh, Mr. Clyde, did you just notice that? He shrugged. Notice what? Th that the entire room just froze. He crinkled his brow in confusion and started looking at me like I was nuts, so I directed him back to his rant. Uh, okay, what, what were you saying about Robert? He just disappeared. Well, maybe he just went to get some coffee. No, 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 no. He has been gone for an hour. Have you ever known Robert to be gone from the office for an hour? He had a point. Well, let me get settled in and then I'll see if I could get to the bottom of all of this. As I sat down at my desk and powered up my computer, I heard a familiar sensual voice behind me. Hi, sexy. I turned and was surprised to see my wife standing before me with a low-cut top displaying her ample cleavage. What are you doing here? She smiled at me seductively. I thought maybe you'd like to ravish me in the supply closet. She could tell by the look in my eyes that I was game. She ran her finger over her lips. I'll meet you there. First, I'm going to have a cup of coffee. I watched her as she sauntered away. Coffee? That was really weird. Why would she want coffee before a raunchy sex session in my office? I waited about ten minutes and then stepped into the supply closet. Scarlet wasn't there. I waited around for another ten minutes and then decided to check on her. I walked to the coffee machine, but I didn't see her. The only person in the area was an employee named Jim. He was getting something out of the cabinet. Hey, uh, Jim, did you happen to see my wife over here getting coffee? Damn right. Couldn't miss her. You are one lucky guy. But the uh, coffee maker is broken. I told her if she wanted coffee, she'd have to go down to the 13th floor. That's when I remembered the sinister-looking man from the elevator. He got off at the 13th floor. I hurried to the elevator and took it to the 13th floor. I stepped out of the elevator and began walking down the hall. The floor was very quiet. As I rounded the corridor, I was shocked at what I saw. It was my missing co-worker, Robert. He was lying dead on the floor with an axe in his back. The sinister man must have killed him. Did he kill Scarlet too? 
That question was answered when I heard Scarlet's voice. She sounded like she was in distress as she said, Please, no. I was thankful that she was alive, but knew she wouldn't be for long if I didn't move quickly. I quietly hurried through a maze of desks following the sounds of my wife's distraught grunts and groans. Then I spotted her. She was in a corner office. The sinister man was standing next to her. He was dressed in a blood-spattered, clear raincoat. He had Scarlet tied to an office chair. I noticed that the sinister man was brandishing a large hunting knife. I gazed around the office for a weapon to nullify his knife. The only thing I noticed that might be useful was an umbrella. As I leaned over and grabbed the umbrella, the sinister man spotted my movement out of the corner of his eye. Upon seeing me, he held up the knife and said, Let's dance. He rushed me and took several swipes at me with the knife. I held up the umbrella, opened it, and tossed it at him. This temporarily disoriented him enough for me to take the offensive. I was able to grab hold of his wrist and keep the knife at bay. We wrestled around, tumbled over several desks, and fell to the floor. The impact of the floor caused the knife to fall from his hand and go sliding under a desk. As we stood up, he punched me with a solid right hook that sent me reeling and dropped me back to the floor next to Robert's dead body. The sinister man and I both eyed the axe in Robert's back at the same time. We knew whoever grabbed the axe first would be victorious in this battle. We launched ourselves towards Robert's body and reached for the axe. And then everything froze. The sinister man was frozen in midair. I gazed across the office at Scarlet bound in the chair. She wasn't moving either. All the sound had vanished and I was in a room of pure silence. I stepped to the nearest window and looked outside. All of the traffic on the streets was still. People walking on the sidewalk were suspended in mid-stride. What was going on? The previous times this happened, everything went back to normal after a matter of seconds. But that wasn't the case now. Time was standing still. Everything had stopped and it was not starting up again. I began to panic. What's happening? What's happening? Suddenly the room turned black, and I heard a booming voice above me say, Open your eyes. I did as I was told. I found myself sitting in a mechanical chair covered with flashing lights. I had wires attached to my head, and there was a woman in a white coat standing next to me. We apologize for the technical glitches. Apparently this program has some bugs we weren't aware of. Due to this inconvenience, your next brainwave session will be free of charge. Everything came flooding back to me. I was a member of Brainwaves, a virtual reality gaming experience. Upon joining Brainwaves, a small chip is inserted in each member's frontal lobe. Then, through a series of electric impulses, a programmed virtual experience enters your brain. While experiencing the program, you forget your real life and believe you are actually living within the programmed world. It's exhilarating. 
Were you enjoying the Maniac in the Office program before the malfunction? Yeah, it was pretty fun. My wife was hot as hell and the sexual aspects were amazing. The storyline about my wife going to get coffee before us having sex in the supply closet seemed a little weak, though. The technician nodded in agreement. But the adventure on the 13th floor made up for that. Had the game not malfunctioned, you would have killed the sinister man with the axe and had one final ultimate sexual session with Scarlet. I shook my head in disappointment. I'm sorry I missed that. We can include the Scarlet character in your brainwave adventure next week if you like. That sounds fine, yes, uh, thank you. Very well. The technician removed the electrodes from my head and helped me to my feet. Thank you for playing Brainwaves. We'll see you next week. This episode is sponsored by my book, It Lives in the Attic. A true jigsaw puzzle of horror that comes together before your eyes. Prepare yourself for a roller coaster ride of the weird, the horrifying, and the unpredictable. It lives in the attic. Only 99 cents on Amazon or free with Kindle Unlimited. Just go to Amazon.com and search for. It lives in the attic. Or go to maniacontheloose.com slash books. Live stream. I work in an office building. Let me tell you, I'm hot stuff. The ladies love me, even though they try to mask their feelings by referring to me as a creep, pervert, or sicko. Once in a while, I even get slapped. Those are the gals who are playing hard to get. <laughs> it was Monday morning, and I was walking to my cubicle when Jennifer, the receptionist, walked by. Yeah, she was wearing a button-up sweater over her blouse, but it was hanging open. Her fun bags were on full display, and her headlights were on, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I couldn't let that fact slip by without a comment. Hey Jennifer, is it cold in here, or are you just horny? <laughs> She pulled her sweater together, veiling the curvature of her breasts, and scowled at me. Go to hell, creepo! Eh, she might seem mad, but there's a glint in her eye that tells me she likes the attention. <laughs> ah, yes, the ladies do love me. I sat down at my desk and turned on my computer. The screen flickered and began the ultra-slow process of powering up. Cheap piece of crap. As I waited, I noticed Nicole walk by my desk. I wheeled my chair out to the corridor so I can watch that shapely ass shake with every step. Choo-choo! She looked back at me to see what I meant. I made it clear. Nice caboose. <laughs> Her nose scrunched up as if she were disgusted. You're sick, pervert. 
Yeah, she calls me a pervert, but I get the impression that she'd love for me to violate her a dozen different ways. <laughs> I push my chair back into my cubicle and stare daggers at my monitor as it continued its process of sputtering to life. This wasn't abnormal, and typically I wouldn't care. The longer my computer took to activate, the more time I had to check out the ladies. But today I needed to get some reports off the wire and forward them to a client as soon as possible. I lost patience with my clunky computer and decided to visit my buddy Ron's cubicle to get the reports off his system. As I made my way to Ron's desk, a hottie toddy named Rose was coming my way. She had a body that wouldn't stop, topped off with flaming red hair. <laughs> I was about to ask her if the carpet matched the drapes, but she seemed to read my mind and held up a finger as she scolded me. One sick, twisted remark out of your mouth, and I'm going to Human Resources and filing a sexual harassment complaint. I flashed her my most smoldering, seductive smirk. Aw, oh, baby, you're no fun. As she passed me, I puckered up and made a loud kissing sound. She flipped me off, but I kind of think she was a little bit turned on. I got to Ron's desk and saw that he wasn't there, but lucky for me, his computer was powered up and rearing to go. I sat down at his desk, grabbed the reports I needed, and fired them off via email to my client. Once I was finished, I minimized his work screen and was surprised to see that the screen had been concealing a small video box. I maximized the video box and discovered that it was a live stream. The feed was in black and white, but I doubt the cinder block room being streamed was much livelier in color. In the middle of the cinder block room was a large wooden high back chair. In the chair was a woman. She was sexy. Probably late 20s, long dark hair. She was wearing a light colored nightgown and was gagged. Her hands were tied to the arms of the chair and her ankles were strapped to the chair's legs. Even though no audio accompanied the video, I could tell the woman was crying. I peered around the office to make sure no one was gawking this way. This was the definition of not safe for work. The coast was clear, so I kept watching. I noticed the woman becoming more agitated and discovered why when a man entered the frame. He was of average size. His back was to the camera so I couldn't make out his face, but fortunately, he was standing at an angle that still allowed me to see the sexy captive quite clearly. The man stood in front of the woman a minute. I could see his jaw moving. He was saying something to her, but lack of sound kept his words a mystery. Then he slapped her. Her head jolted to the side. He followed that up with a backhand knocking her face back toward the front. I continued watching on as the man took a few steps closer to the helpless woman and began unfastening his pants. Hey! I wheeled my head around at the sound of the voice. It was Ron. He was pissed. He shoved me out of the way and immediately closed the live stream video. I grinned at him and nodded. <laughs> Ron, my boy, 
I didn't know you had it in you. Ron moved in on me and got his face close to mine. Not a word about this, do you hear me? Not a word. I gave him a sly grin and patted him on the upper arm. Your naughty secret is safe with me. (laughs) I headed back to my desk and started doing my mundane tasks. Throughout the day, I caught Ron gazing at me with a serious expression. Once he was even on the phone talking to someone as he stared at me. I'd just smile, wink, or give him a thumbs up. He was worried that I was going to spill the beans. He was stressing over nothing. I wasn't going to tell anyone, but I did want the link to that live stream. (laughs) The fun was just getting started when he shut the show down. I noticed that Ron left early that day. He didn't say anything else to me about the live stream, so I assumed he was over it. When work let out, I swaggered out to my IROC Z28. I didn't even notice the ominous white van parked next to it until I heard the metallic grind of the door sliding open and felt meat hook hands grabbing me and hoisting me into the vehicle. As they zoomed off, somebody immediately threw a burlap sack over my head and my wrists were clamped together with wrist ties. I hollered out for them to tell me what was going on, but they clobbered me real good. I kept my mouth shut from then on. Finally, the vehicle came to a stop and the bag was removed from my head. There were a half a dozen large guys wearing black ski masks. I thought I was a goner, but then I saw Ron emerge from behind them. You shouldn't have opened that live stream. Hey, sorry Ron, okay, but you don't have to worry. I'll keep my trap shut. Mom's the word. Ron seemed sincere as he spoke. I believe you, but I'm not so sure these fellows do. They're afraid you'll tell someone. What? (laughs) Why the hell would I tell anyone? I thought that whole scene was mighty hot. I was getting turned on. Hell, how do I get to be one of those guys who gets to get into the room with the captive women? (laughs) Yeah. After saying that, the ski-masked men looked around at each other. I guess they figured that if I joined them, they could trust me. So I'm one of them now. (laughs) Yeah, I get to go into the cinder block room and do whatever I want to the ladies. Yeah, they scream and holler, but deep down, I think they kind of like it. I love blood splatter. Not to be confused with blood spatter, blood squirts, blood spurts, blood drops, or blood spray. I mean, honest-to-goodness blood splatter. The term blood spatter encompasses most forms of blood that has marked a surface in any way. It's a broad term. Blood squirts and spurts are typically when an artery has been sliced, and the blood actually squirts out of the body with every beat of the heart. Blood drops are when the blood drips from a wound onto the ground. 
And blood spray is the residual spray of blood that can come from extreme wounds such as gunshots, knife stabs, or blunt force trauma. None of these things constitutes a genuine blood splatter. First of all, in order to achieve a splatter level, a deep resounding splat noise must accompany the hit. The noise should be followed by a clear splash of blood that travels a fair distance. Think in terms of someone doing a belly flop in a swimming pool. You hear the splat sound, which is followed by a chaotic burst of water blasting off in all directions. Now envision the water being blood, and the belly flopper being a baseball bat, and you'll have a decent understanding of what I mean when I say blood splatter. As you may have guessed, I don't get the opportunity to see blood splatter unless I create it myself. This requires me killing someone. I use a bat. I hate confrontation, so I always sneak up on my victim from behind. I then knock them senseless with one blow of the bat. Once they are lying on the ground in a daze, I finish them off with a killing blow by smashing in the face. If done correctly, their face will cave in, and if I wait approximately three minutes, the cavity will pool with blood. That's when I bring the bat down with all of my might into the center of the pool of blood. Much like a strongman at a carnival bringing the mallet down onto a wooden platform in an attempt to propel a small weight up a vertical pole to hit the bell at the top. When the strike is performed correctly, I successfully create blood splatter. There's nothing like it. I play this game of mine at least once a week. I always target small women. That way if something goes wrong and I have to fight them, I have the size and strength advantage. I hate fighting though and I'm not good at it, so it's imperative that my first blow with the bat hits the mark. Over the years I've reached expert level with the task. They rarely detect my coming and I almost always knock them out cold before they know what happened. Tonight is the night for another blood splatter. I spotted my target earlier in the evening. She was a petite little thing, couldn't have been more than five feet tall. She was thin. I could see that she had a breast size that would require at least a B cup, so this was likely a woman and not an adolescent. Not that I really cared. I don't know where she came from or where she was going, I just knew she made the mistake of walking all alone in a dark, lonely alley. I hid in a nearby yard and choked the handle of my bat as I waited in the shadows behind a fence. I watched as she walked past me. Her stride was deliberate and precise. When she was about ten feet away I made my move. I sprung from the shadows and silently maneuvered myself behind her, pulled the bat back, and swung with all of my might. The bat bounced off of her head. A clanging thud echoed through the alley. The woman froze for a couple of seconds before she plopped over onto her back like a bag of bricks. Her lifeless eyes were open as she stared up at nothing. 
There was something spooky about them. They almost didn't look real. They were like doll's eyes. It, it didn't matter. They were about to be caved into her head anyway. I brought the bat up over my head and pounded it down into the center of her face. The sound of my bat on her face was unusual. It sounded like a metallic crash. The kind of sound I'd expect to hear if I bashed my bat against a plate of sheet metal. I looked down at the sunken face of the woman, expecting to see a pile of mush filling with blood. But that's not at all what I saw. Instead, I saw a jumble of wires, circuits, and flashing lights. This was some kind of android. I looked down at the robotic body as it twitched. I could hear an array of frenzied digital chirps and witnessed a small trail of white smoke escaping from the center of the machine's face. What was going on? Did robots walk among us? If so, how many? And how many of us knew about them? My thoughts were interrupted by the clatter of footsteps rushing toward me, and I found myself surrounded by a half-dozen people of varying sizes and sexes. Or should I say, robots? I could see the subtle red glow in the center of their synthetic eyes. Had I been oblivious to their existence, I wouldn't have put two and two together. But since I knew, it was clear. That's when it dawned on me. Because I was aware of their existence, they couldn't allow me to live. They descended upon me like locusts and beat me down with their metallic arms. I tried my best to cover myself up, but there were too many of them. Eventually the blows landed and I was laid out in a daze, not unlike my many victims. I was still conscious when one of the androids balled up their fist, raised it high into the air, and pounded down with force. I died hearing the wonderful splat sound and witnessed the chaotic splash of my own blood splatter into the night. If you like the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories podcast, please subscribe on whatever platform you listen on. Feel free to leave a nice review, too, if you like. And don't be shy about letting other people know about the show. All of these things help us out a ton, and we appreciate it very much. The Cult When I was 14 years old, my parents went away on vacation, and I stayed with my grandparents for a week. I never stayed with them overnight before, let alone for an entire week, so I wasn't sure what to expect. My big fear was boredom. Looking back, I wish that was all there was to fear. My grandparents lived in a two-story, weather-beaten house set in the deep woods without any neighbors to behold. The location raised my hopes for passing the time as I love exploring the woods and watching animals. My grandparents were nice people. They didn't gush over me like a lot of grandparents do their grandchildren. They just talked to me like a normal person. They were good to me, didn't buckle me down with a whole bunch of rules, and I genuinely felt welcome there. My grandparents typically went to bed around 9 p.m. 
They let me stay up and watch TV, which I did most nights until 11. The first night there, everything was fine. I went to bed, slept well, and woke up to a feast of a breakfast. I wandered around the edge of the woods and spent hours watching a family of squirrels climb the trees. I was starving when I came in and it worked out great as dinner was being served just then. After dinner, my grandparents and I watched a couple of TV shows and then they went to bed. Per usual, I stayed up about another two hours before turning in. I woke up at 1 o'clock a.m. with the need to urinate. I climbed out of bed and reached for my bedroom doorknob when I suddenly heard quiet footsteps passing by my room. I carefully opened my bedroom door and peeped out. I saw my grandparents walking down the hallway and then watched on as they walked downstairs. The odd thing was that they were fully dressed and were wearing long black robes. It appeared that the robes had hoods, but they were down. After a moment, I heard the front door open and close. I thought it was incredibly strange that they were dressed in those outfits and going out at 1 o'clock in the morning. I used the restroom and went back to bed. The sound of the front door closing woke me up at 2.30 a.m. I could hear my grandparents walking down the hall outside my bedroom, and then their bedroom door shut. The next day, they made no mention of their late-night escapade and went about everything as normal. I was very curious about what they had been doing, but didn't feel comfortable bringing it up to them. The next night, I lied awake in my bed to see whether or not that was a one-time odd event or not. Turns out it wasn't. It was one o'clock in the morning when they walked down the hallway. Once again, they were donning black robes. This time, they had their hoods up. After I heard the front door close, I jetted out of bed, threw some jeans on, and snuck out of the house. Once outside, I stopped and listened, and I could hear their distant footsteps crunching over dried leaves in the forest next to the house. I peered around the side of the house and could see a lantern swaying through the woods. Where were they going? The moon was full and bright, so I could see my way through the night well enough to stealthily follow behind them. I could barely make out the light of their lantern ahead of me and kept following until it went black. At that point, I just continued forward down the deer trail I was on, hoping to find some clue of where they went. About ten minutes later, I happened upon an old, rickety wooden cabin. The interior of the cabin was aglow with the flickering of candles. I stepped closer and took cover behind a thick oak tree and peered in through one of the broken windows of the cabin. I could see several cloaked figures. There was one of them that I could see well. He had a long nose and a big scar over one of his eyes. The group of dark-clad people were standing in a circle holding hands. They were all chanting in unison. I couldn't understand what they were saying. It sounded like a foreign language. It was quite unsettling. I continued to watch until the chanting ended and the robed people stepped away from my view. 
After a few minutes, the candles went out. That's when I hightailed it back to my grandparents' house. I quickly changed back in my pajamas and laid down in bed. It was about 15 minutes later when my grandparents returned home. I could hear their footsteps walking down the hall, but this time they stopped just outside my door. My door slowly creaked open. I opened one of my eyes. I could see my grandmother's silver hair and the beam of moonlight shining through my window. She thought I was asleep and stared at me coldly for a few seconds before shutting the door. The next day my grandparents seemed as normal as ever and had no qualms about me going out to play in the woods. Little did they know, my plan was to get a closer look at that cabin in the daylight. I had no difficulty in finding it. For some reason, that rundown cabin seemed even more ominous during the day. The wood of the cabin was worn and cracked. The roof was partially caved in. It didn't look safe. I stood behind the shelter of a tree for several minutes watching the cabin to make sure nobody was inside. Once I was confident that the coast was clear, I entered the cabin. The cabin smelled like a combination of smoke, mildew, and decay. The first thing I noticed was all the melted candles that were placed throughout, but then my eyes focused on the large white X. It was drawn diagonal from one corner of the room to the other. Upon closer inspection, I realized the X was composed of some type of white powder. What I saw in the center of the X sent shivers down my spine. It was a large, messy, red stain. It was mostly dried, but still had some moist areas. It smelled putrid and was covered in buzzing flies that were happily lapping up whatever that was. I hoped it wasn't blood, but that's what it seemed like. I didn't know what to do at that point. I certainly wasn't going to let my grandparents know of my discovery, so I decided just to play it cool until my parents got back from vacation in a few days. That night... I heard my grandparents leave their room again at one o'clock in the morning and slip downstairs. But this time, the front door didn't shut, and I could hear their distant voices. I ever so carefully crept down the hallway and took rest atop the stairs in an attempt to eavesdrop on them. I couldn't make out what they were saying very well, but I could clearly understand segments of their sentences such as, Needs a larger sacrifice, and, But he's our grandson. A few minutes later, I thought I heard my grandfather say, We'll tell them he ran away. I snuck back into my bed but didn't sleep that night and devised a plan. They weren't going to have to pretend I ran away. I was really going to do so before they could do whatever they were planning, which sure sounded like it involved me. That morning, I secretly packed my essential belongings into my smallest bag. 
When my grandparents presented me with breakfast, I made the excuse that I wasn't hungry out of fear that they may drug me. They seemed disappointed. My grandmother even pressed the issue for me to eat some eggs, but I refused and eventually she let it go. I hid my bag under my shirt and told them I was going to play in the woods. I remember them both looking at each other oddly when I told them that. I could see in their eyes that they didn't want me to go. My grandfather suggested I stay in with them today. I was able to talk them into letting me check on the family of squirrels and that I'd be back in just a few minutes. Why were they so intent on me staying in with them? What were they planning? I was afraid I knew. Was I going to be the red stain in the middle of that X tomorrow? When I got outside of their house, I ran like the wind down the driveway to the gravel road that led toward town. I wasn't sure how long it was going to take me to get there or what I was going to do once I made it, but I just knew I had to get out of there. I was running down the gravel road for about 10 minutes when a beat-up old jalopy came sputtering down the road. When it reached me, it slowed and pulled over. Where are you going, kid? I took a few seconds to catch my breath before explaining that I was heading into town. Town? It'll take you forever and a day to get there on foot. Let me give you a lift. I knew I was never supposed to get into cars with strangers, but under the circumstances, I decided to make an exception. As soon as I hopped into the car, the driver stomped on the gas and spun the car around in the gravel. He started speeding back in the direction from which I came. No, not this way. I want to go to town. I looked up at the man who turned his head and scowled at me. That's when I recognized his long nose and the big scar over his eye. This was one of the cloaked men from the cabin. Don't you move, kid. The man turned roughly onto my grandparents' driveway. He floored it all the way up to my grandparents' house and came to a skidding halt just outside their door. He grabbed me by the arm and yanked me out of the car. As my grandparents emerged from the house to see what the commotion was, the scar-faced man shook me as he addressed them. He almost got away. It was then that the phone began ringing. My grandmother disappeared back into the house to answer the phone, leaving my grandfather and the scar-faced man to glare at me. A minute later, my grandmother came outside and threw her hands up in disgust. His parents are back from vacation early. They're picking him up this afternoon. All three of them slumped with disappointment. The scar-faced man left, but not before giving me one last evil glare. I stayed outside the rest of the day, far away from my grandparents until my parents arrived. I never told my parents what happened. I figured they wouldn't believe me. But I refused to ever go to my grandparents' house again. If you like what you're hearing, please consider contributing. Any amount helps. Recurring monthly contributions are best of all. 
Just go to ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash support. That's ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash support. A hell of a way to die. I'm a successful writer, and I always like to finish my books in the seclusion of a Wyoming cabin. I celebrate my latest accomplishments by shutting myself off from the rest of the busy world. It allows me to enjoy some me-time amongst the peaceful mountains. The cabin I rented was located atop a forested region not far from a sheep farming area. If you weren't a sheep farmer, you had no business being out that way. Unless, of course, you wanted to get away from everything. Like I did. No phone, no TV, no internet. Nothing but quiet. The cabin I rented was so far out in the middle of nowhere that it could only be reached by helicopter. Aside from the pilot and myself, there was only one other passenger on the helicopter. A man in his early 30s of average build. He had thick wavy black hair and was sporting a stubble beard. He was staying at another private cabin approximately 20 miles from mine. I wasn't sure if it was his first helicopter ride or what, but he was visibly nervous and sweating. We were only in the air for 10 minutes when the pilot had to make an unscheduled stop due to wind shears in the area. He let us know that they were supposed to let up in approximately one hour, and then it would be safe for the helicopter to go up and get us to our locations. Our delay totally frazzled the other passenger. An hour? An an, an hour? That'll be after nightfall. I have to get to my cabin before nightfall. The pilot did his best to explain and calm the man down. Sorry, fella, but if we get hit by one of those wind shears, we won't make it to the cabin at all. Try to relax. This will pass soon, and then I'll get you out there as quick as I can. This was not comforting news to the man, who began to pace back and forth at a frantic pace. He kept wiping the sweat from his face and was constantly running his hands through his hair in a nervous fashion. Occasionally I could hear him snap out in frustration as he stared up at the darkening sky. Come on, come on! It was a little less than an hour later when the pilot gave us the all clear. The other passenger sprinted to the helicopter, hopped in, and then waved me and the pilot along anxiously. Hurry up! It's gonna get dark soon! Hurry! We hurried to the helicopter for the anxiety-ridden man's sake, and the pilot quickly got us up in the air and on our way. We were getting close. I could see the porch light of my cabin in the far distance as night darkened the sky. This sent the other passenger over the edge. Oh shit! Oh shit! It's night! It's night! The pilot spoke up. Relax, fella. We're just a few minutes away. Everything's gonna be just fine. It was then that the clouds darkening the skies gave way to a burst of light from the brilliant full moon above. The other passenger winced as the moonlight cast its beam upon him. No! No! It's too late! It's too late! The man started convulsing as if he were having some kind of seizure. I watched on in terror as the man held his hand up and claws dripped through the flesh of his fingertips. 
He let out an agony-filled bellow as his face began to bubble and distort before elongating into a fang-filled snout. Thick hair wriggled its way out of every pore in his body, and I found myself staring at a werewolf. The monster gazed my way with fierce yellow eyes, and I braced myself as I could see that it was about to launch itself at me. The pilot then peered back over his shoulder. Upon witnessing the beast for himself, he shouted, Holy shit! The shout of the pilot distracted the beast from me, and it sprang forward, mounting its attack on the pilot. As the pilot let loose with death cries, the helicopter jolted sideways, knocking me into the side door, which burst open. A suction of air almost pulled me out of the helicopter, which would have sent me plummeting to my death, but I was able to latch onto the back of my seat and kept myself inside. Then I realized that perhaps the best thing would be just to let go. If I didn't fall out of the helicopter, it was going to crash and burn, or the werewolf would ravage me. I was trying to decide which form of death would be the quickest when I spotted the parachute on the helicopter's wall. I lurched forward and grabbed it. I had one of my arms through the straps when the werewolf stepped away from the pilot's dead, mangled body and surged forward, slamming into me and knocking me backwards out of the helicopter. As I fell backwards through the night sky, I looked upward and watched as the werewolf, without hesitation, jumped out of the helicopter after me. And it must have been the way its body was positioned compared to mine, because it caught up to me in no time and began wrestling with me in the air, gnashing its bloodstained jaws and swiping with its deadly claws. Somehow I was able to deliver a swift kick to the werewolf's chest. I doubt the beast even felt the blow, but it did succeed in breaking the monster's grip on me, and it fell backward toward the earth. I watched as it bounced off the ground with a sickening thud. I frantically pulled at the parachute's cord, hoping I could somehow save my life. The ground was zooming toward me just as the parachute broke free from the bag and swelled with air. It slowed me enough to keep the fall from killing me, but I still hit the ground with brute force and I was sure I broke my ankle. I laid on the ground for a moment and caught my breath. My heart was beating out of my chest. It was very possible that I might have died from a heart attack, but after several minutes of focused breathing, my heart pace simmered down and I thought I was going to be fine. Then I heard the roar of the werewolf. It was just ten feet away. Its legs were broken in multiple places and were twisted around backwards. I could see bones protruding through its fur-covered skin. It was in bad shape and was coughing up buckets of blood as it roared, but it still held rage in its eyes and those eyes were focused on me. I crawled forward at a surprisingly quick rate. I got to my feet and attempted to run but fell right back down. My left ankle was shattered. I could put no weight on it. I stood up again, more carefully this time, and started hopping away from the werewolf. But that monster, even in its near-death state, was somehow gaining ground on me. If it managed to get its ferocious claws on me, it would rip me to shreds. I continued hopping forward, occasionally looking back over my shoulder at my moonlight surroundings. The werewolf was close, and getting closer. A surge of adrenaline sent me forward like a shot out of a gun until I reached the forest's edge and fell forward into a clearing. 
It was going to be difficult for me to get up again before the werewolf caught up to me. I watched as it dragged itself to the clearing and reached out for me. Suddenly, the werewolf let out a loud, wheezing gasp and went into a short spasm before slumping still from death. I barely had time to catch my breath before I was startled by the baa of a sheep. I looked around and found myself surrounded by sheep. I was on a sheep farm. If I could find my way to the sheep farmer's house, I might just survive this night yet. As I hopped through the pasture, I lost my balance and crashed against a giant metallic self-feeder filled with grain for the sheep to eat at their leisure. I fell hard onto my back and watched as the giant steel structure fell toward me. It landed inches from my head and cracked open, spilling its contents all over me. I found myself immersed in several feet of grain and I was suffocating. My useless leg was making it difficult for me to push myself up through the grain to get air. But finally, my face broke the surface of the grain and I swallowed a huge breath of crisp night air. That's when I heard the stomping hooves of the sheep herd rocketing toward that spilled grain. They were on me before I could even attempt to stand. I tried with all my might to raise myself up, but every time I got any kind of momentum, hordes of sheep would push me back down. So there you have it. I survived falling from a helicopter, and I survived the attack of a werewolf, only to be trampled to death by a mob of sheep. <laughs> it was a hell of a way to die. It's in my apartment. It's in my apartment. I just don't know what it is. Ever since I moved here, I never feel like I'm by myself even though I live alone. I always feel like there's someone standing behind me. Sometimes I swear I can hear them breathing. But when I turn around, there's nobody there. I'm a bookworm. Most nights I like to curl up in my rocking chair and lose myself in a book for hours. I always set the book on the end of the table and then go to bed. Most mornings when I wake up and walk into the living room, the book is on the floor. I remember one day at work I realized I forgot my cell phone at home. I was certain I left it sitting on the coffee table. Just in case I was mistaken and my phone was somewhere in the office, I called my cell phone to see if I could hear it ringing. My suspicions were verified when the phone started ringing and I didn't hear the ringtone in the office. I was about to hang up the phone when I heard someone answer. I could hear hampered breath on the other end of the line. Then the phone went dead. I called back several times but it went straight to voicemail. That evening when I arrived home, I found my cell phone sitting on the coffee table just where I knew I left it. I checked my apartment thoroughly, but nobody was there. 
One night I fell fast asleep in my bed, but was awakened by the sound of footsteps in the hallway, followed by a familiar squeaking sound of my rocking chair swaying back and forth. I got up and hurried to the living room and found it empty, but the rocking chair was at the tail end of rocking before it went still, as if someone had been sitting in it and then got up. Sometimes when I'm in the living room or the kitchen, I hear wheezing breaths coming from the bathroom. When I get up and open the bathroom door, there's nobody there. But the bathroom is freezing cold, sometimes to the point where I can see my own breath. Once in a while when I lay down in bed and close my eyes for the night, just before I drift off to sleep, I feel the movement of someone shifting in the bed next to me. When I turn over, I see nobody. On those nights, I get up and sleep on the couch. I bought a security camera and put it in my living room so that it would record and confirm the odd occurrences happening in my apartment. But whenever I check the video, all I see is a large black smudge. I cleaned the camera lens thoroughly, but it did not help. I even complained to the company I bought it from and they sent me a replacement camera, but the same exact thing continues to happen. It's as if whatever is in the apartment with me doesn't want me to see it. One night while I was on lunch break at my office, I sat in the break room eating a container of yogurt and started looking through recent pictures on my phone that I had taken. I was dumbfounded when the gallery displayed a thumbnail picture that had been taken the previous night. The problem was that I had not taken any new pictures in over a week. I clicked on the thumbnail to see what the image showed. I was shocked to see that it was a picture of me lying asleep in my bed. I alerted building security. This wasn't the first time I did so. They didn't believe anything I told them, but they humored me and did a thorough search of my apartment and found no sign of anyone else having been there. One night I woke up from my sleep to see the sunken, pale face of a young woman staring at me through the bedroom window before ducking down out of sight. I hurried to the window, opened it, and looked outside. Of course no one was there. I live on the tenth floor, you see. Even so, I can make out the fog of breath dissipating from the window's glass. I told the building superintendent about all the strange happenings. I asked him if any of the previous occupants of my apartment had ever experienced anything unusual while living there. He told me nobody had mentioned having any strange encounters in that apartment. I asked him if he could possibly give me the phone number of the last person who lived in the apartment because I wanted to speak to them personally. He paused for a long time before explaining to me that the last person who lived in my apartment was a young, lonely woman. She spent most of her days in the living room rocking back and forth in a rocking chair. She had been suffering from lung cancer for quite some time. She ultimately decided that she couldn't take the suffering any longer and threw herself out of the bedroom window and fell to her death. The superintendent was nice enough to let me out of the remainder of my lease. I moved immediately.
We hope you enjoyed the show. We're dying for you to come back for more. <laughs> Visit ManiacOnTheLoose.com Sign up for our newsletter and I'll give you some free stuff. We'll see you soon. Very soon. If you like scary stories and you want to support the show, buy some of my books. I have a whole slew of them, and most of them are just 99 cents. Go to ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash books. Again, this is a great way to support the show. That's ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash books.